Benvenuto and welcome to episode 14 of City Breaks Florence. One of those episodes which isn't going to be focused around a particular building but a person and in fact one Galileo, the 16th century scientist and astronomer who's perhaps best known for his troubles with the church and his trial for heresy. He was born in Pisa and the trial took place in Rome, but he's still very much a son of Florence. He lived there for much of his life. He did much of his work there. He was taken under the wing of Cosimo I, so that tied him to the city as well for much of the time. And although for much of the episode I'll be talking about Galileo the person, there are two places in Florence where you can find traces of him today or see the mark that he's left on the city. One of those would be Santa Croce Church, because that's where his tomb is. And the second one is, of course, the Galileo Museum, so the Science Museum in the centre of the city, named after him. I've mentioned in earlier episodes that there are other ways in which science was a feature of Florence. We'll come back to one or two of those in passing during the episode, but I think it's absolutely the case that the most famous scientist connected with the city is one Galileo Galilei. So, to begin then, a little bit of detail about his early life. He was born in 1564 in Pisa, and although we don't know all that much about his very early life or his schooling, we do know that he must have had a very precocious talent, because at the age of 25, he pops up as Professor of Maths in Pisa. And it's one of the early stories told about him that tells us that even at that age he was questioning what other people thought, taking received wisdom and wanting to see for himself if it really was true. And on this particular occasion, he had been arguing with colleagues about whether if you dropped some cannonballs from a, from a height, they would all fall at the same speed regardless of their weight. He was pretty sure they would. Other people didn't agree and he decided he would prove it. So he climbed to the top of the tower in Pisa, armed with a few cannonballs on balls of different weights, dropped them off the edge, and sure enough, they all crashed to the ground at the same time. There is some suggestion that this being right didn't make him too popular with some of his colleagues. And it's certainly true that shortly after that, he left Pisa and went to teach at the University of Padua, arriving there in 1592. And a couple of things happened while he was there that were quite influential for the rest of his life. And the first one was that he found himself in the position of teacher to Cosimo de' Medici, who was very young at the time. I think he was about 15 or 16. But this led to a relationship then with the Medici family, which Galileo, in fact, worked quite hard to maintain and which proved really very influential for the rest of his life. And the second thing that happened was his invention of a scientific instrument that took place in 1597. He was actually teaching a course on military architecture and he began to have ideas about things that might be useful. So he eventually devised this instrument which was known as a geometric and military compass. It was designed to help soldiers do things like arrange their army on the battlefield or decide what size of charge you would need to fire a particular sized cannonball. But he soon began to realise that it could do more than that and it became really an early version of a pocket calculator. It could compute compound interest, it could work out monetary exchange rates, it could work out square roots. And he tested it out and got other people to use it. It was used by shipbuilders in Venice. It was used by the army and he began to realise it had real potential. So to show that he wasn't just an inventor, he was also had a business side to him. He made a few copies to see if they would sell and when they did he took on an instrument maker so that that person could do the production 
and he could carry on doing his teaching work at the university. And he came up with quite a clever scheme to pay this man. So he was allowed to move into Galileo's house with his wife and children. And they would get, instead of a salary, they would get bed and board. And as an incentive for the instrument maker to join in with the selling, he promised him two thirds of a share of the price of any instrument that was sold. And things began to go quite well. Quite a few were selling. And then Galileo came up with new business ideas. So first off, he decided if you paid five scudi you could have the instrument but if you paid 20 scudi you could have the instrument and lessons on all the things that it would do and then he came up with a different idea quite unusual for the time he wrote an instruction booklet to go alongside it had it published and then that would be on sale with the instrument this booklet had the wonderful title operations of the geometric and military compass of galileo galilei florentine patrician and teacher of mathematics in the university of padua Quite a snappy title. And his other good idea was in that he decided to dedicate the booklet to the Medici family. Quite clever, because it was bound to flatter them. It would certainly remind them of his existence and generally build up the relationship that he had started when he was Cosimo's teacher. So this is what he wrote in the dedication. It's quite wordy, so perhaps a quick translation in advance will help. It's basically something like, You're so wonderful that I can't possibly express all that in a few words of a dedication, so I'm not even going to try. But this is how he put it. If, most serene prince, I wish to set forth in this place all the praises due to your highness's own merits and those of your distinguished family, I should be committed to such a lengthy discourse that this preface would far outrun the rest of the text. Whence I shall refrain from even attempting that task, uncertain that I could finish half of it, let alone all. Galileo did have a specific motive, in fact. He really wanted to get himself a post as the court mathematician to the Medicis in Florence, because that would allow him to come home to Tuscany. And he followed up his dedication of the scientific tract with a letter which is also very deferential. So he writes, I have waited until now to write, being held back by a respectful concern of not wanting to present myself as presumptuous or arrogant. And he goes on sending hints via friends and so on until, in fact, he's given the post, which was a huge step forward for Galileo. He could move to Florence, which he wanted to do. His income would be more secure and he would have more time to spend on research and thinking because he wouldn't be doing so much teaching. Win, win, win. So now he had a fancy title, which was Head Mathematician of the Grand Duke, and he had a salary of a thousand scudi a year, and a villa thrown in as well for him to live in. Perfect. This was all very generous of the Medici, but in fact they were amply repaid because Galileo designed a telescope which would allow him to observe the surface of the moon and to identify the four satellites of Jupiter. And Heva was very careful to baptise these in honour of the Medici. So he called the four planets the Medician planets. So what we would call the four moons of Jupiter were known in Florence at the time as the Medicea Sidera. And then based on what he learnt from using it, he went on to write a pamphlet called Siderius Nuncius, which means messenger of the stars in which he was the first person to describe the Milky Way as consisting of lots of individual stars and the first person to describe the craters and mountains and valleys of the surface of the moon. So I think the Medici must have felt that they'd made a good connection here. If Galileo had done nothing else, I think he would still be being read and talked about by physicists and astronomers today. But unfortunately, what he did next led to him becoming even more famous stroke infamous. 
And that was his defence of the ideas of Copernicus, who'd been operating about 75 years earlier, and whose theories brought Galileo into direct confrontation with the Catholic Church. So, to backtrack for a minute, in 1543, Copernicus had stated that he thought that the Sun was the centre of the universe and that it was orbited by the Earth and the other planets. The Christian Church had disagreed with him and called his ideas foolish and stupid and incompatible with the truths of the Christian faith. And when Galileo began to defend Copernicus's ideas publicly, he eventually got a warning in 1616 from the Church. From the Pope himself, in fact, who asked him to refrain from saying these things or from supporting this, quote, false doctrine. But Galileo had collected lots of evidence and proofs. He had all his astronomical observations written up, and he came to the conclusion that the truth of Copernicus's ideas was irrefutable. He was so sure that he was right that he published a piece claiming this, called Discourses on Floating Bodies, which came out in 1611. Result, more criticism from the church, and in fact, eventually in 1616, an actual ban, you must not talk about the ideas of Copernicus or you must not advocate them any further. But Galileo did exactly that in a second work. This was entitled Dialogo Sopra i Due Massimi Sistemi del Mondo, or Dialogue on the Two World Systems. And what that achieved was to make the Pope, Urban VIII, so furious that in the end, Galileo was charged with heresy and he was summoned to Rome to stand trial. Some of his supporters tried to talk reason to the Pope, but he would have none of it. Ferdinando, Duke Ferdinando II, Cosimo's father, of course, could have stepped in and supported him, but didn't. Probably didn't want a big row with the Pope. So Galileo, who by this stage was in his 70s, and really not very well, had to go to Rome in order to stand trial. When he got there, he was supported by a man known as the Ambassador Nicolini, who pleaded with the Pope to let Galileo return to Tuscany. He actually said the following, quote, I reiterated that his old age, ill health and readiness to submit to any censure might render him worthy of such favour. But his holiness again said he thinks there is no way out and may God forgive Signor Galilei for having meddled with these subjects. But the Pope and his cardinals were quite determined if Galileo was going to support Copernicus, then he was contradicting Holy Scripture and an Inquisition would be held. They met in June 1633 in the Church of Santa Maria Sopra Minerva in Rome and read out to Galileo the following charge. Quote, we say, pronounce, sentence and declare that you, Galileo, by reason of the matters which have been detailed in the trial and which you have confessed already, have rendered yourself in the judgment of this holy office vehemently suspected of heresy, namely of having held and believed the doctrine which is false and contrary to the sacred and divine scriptures, that the sun is the centre of the world and does not move from east to west, and that the earth moves and is not the centre of the world, and that one may hold and defend as probable an opinion after it has been declared and defined contrary to holy scripture. There were ten cardinals present, but only seven of them signed the charge. A couple stayed away to avoid it, and one, Francesco Cardinal Barberini, tried hard to plead his case, but to no avail. Galileo was quite resigned to the idea that he was going to have to sign, and so, dressed all in white to show how penitent he was, he knelt in front of the inquisitors and read out what they had written for him. It begins like this. 
I, Galileo, son of the late Vincenzo Galilei, Florentine, aged seventy years, arraigned personally before this tribunal and kneeling before you, most eminent and reverend Lord Carnals, Inquisitors General, against heretical depravity throughout the Christian Commonwealth, having before my eyes and touching with my hands the Holy Gospels, swear that... Dot, dot, dot. And he goes on to swear how wrong he has been to think that the sun is the centre of the world, to think that the earth is not the centre of the world, or to believe that it moves. And he, he agrees that he, quote, must not hold, defend, nor teach in any manner whatever, either orally or in writing, the said false doctrine. He freely admits that he's written up some of these ideas. He promises again that he won't do that. He promises that he will accept all the penances which they decide to give him. And he ends with the following words, quote, I, the said Galileo Galilei, have abjured, sworn, promised and bound myself as above, and in witness of the truth, with my own hand, have subscribed the present document of my abjuration and have recited it word by word in Rome at the convent of the Minerva this 22nd day of June, 1633. It's often said that as he got up from his knees, he muttered under his breath the words, E pur si move, which means, but still it moves, or even that he shouted them out and stamped his foot. But it's thought today that actually that's a story that's probably grown in the telling. It may be that he said it at some point later, but it's thought highly unlikely that he would have said that in the presence of the inquisitors, because that would have ended very badly. Galileo was sentenced to imprisonment in the dungeons, of the Vatican and his writings were placed on an index of prohibited books where they remained for nearly 200 years. The two people who'd already pleaded on his behalf, Cardinal Barberini and Ambassador Nicolini, continued to do so and eventually Galileo was moved to be imprisoned in the Tuscan Embassy in Rome, moved again then to Siena and finally allowed to return to Florence where he lived out the rest of his days. He lived another nine years, spending most of that time in the Villa Architri, which the Medici had given to him. And when he died, he was buried in Santa Croce. Duke Ferdinando, perhaps regretting that he hadn't supported Galileo in his struggles with the Pope, wanted to pay for a sculpture to go on Galileo's tomb. And an artist was commissioned, one Vincenzo Viviani, who had some interesting ideas about what he wanted to produce. He had a theory that Michelangelo and Galileo were connected. It was true that when Galileo was born, Michelangelo had in fact died just a few hours earlier and Viviano was very taken with this idea and had the notion that Michelangelo's spirit had somehow leapt into Galileo's body and been an inspiration to him throughout his life. So when he looked at the sculpture on Michelangelo's tomb, also in Santa Croce, he decided to do something that would be a mirror of it. On Michelangelo's tomb, there's a bust of him, and then there are three muses representing painting, sculpture and architecture, sitting around his coffin in mourning. And Viviano decided he would design something similar for Galileo, the bust of Galileo, and then the three muses representing astronomy, geometry and philosophy. In fact, in the end, the finished article only had two muses, those two astronomy and geometry. And they flank the bust of Galileo, who's holding a telescope in his right hand. And to his left, there's a globe and an assortment of books. So very much a sculpture to represent all the things that he'd been dedicated to during his life. The work was begun, but there was quite a long delay 
due partly to the controversy surrounding Galileo and the fact that the Pope wasn't too keen on having a very respectful sculpture dedicated to him. Viviani died in the middle of all of this, but he left money in his will for the work to be finished. And finally, in 1737, the sculpture was put up and Galileo's body was moved, taken out of the tomb where it had been put and moved into the new one. And in fact, there was an interesting incident at that point, because when they opened up his tomb, they found inside not just the one coffin they'd been expecting, but a second one. And it's believed that that may well have been the body of his daughter. She was a nun in a Florentine convent, and she'd kept up a long correspondence with her father and a very good relationship with him until she predeceased him. And it's thought that it may well have been his wish that she should be buried with him. There's a novel, in fact, telling the story of the daughter and her relationship with her father. It's called Galileo's Daughter and it's by Darba Sabel. I'll be talking about it in one of the literary episodes at the end of the series. So that's more or less the end of the story of Galileo but just as a postscript it's interesting that in 1992 the church finally officially admitted that it had been wrong. John Paul II, the Pope at the time, issued the statement which read as follows. He referred to, quote, a tragic mutual incomprehension has been interpreted as the reflection of a fundamental opposition between science and faith. Perhaps you could see that a bit more as an excuse than a full-blown apology, but I think it's nice to know that eventually it was recognised that Galileo had not been in the wrong. Galileo is definitely the most important scientist who's associated with Florence, But it is interesting to note that before him there were other Florentines who were very interested in science and mathematics and in thinking of ways to make their growing understanding work for them. The architect Brunelleschi, for example, had studied with a mathematician called Toscanelli. He even did some maths exams and got something called a brevetto in mathematics, some kind of certificate. In her book, The Stones of Florence, Mary McCarthy explains what use he put this new knowledge to. This is what she writes. Quote, to demonstrate the laws of his discovery to the curious, he painted a little peep-show panel of the baptistery, as seen from the door of the Duomo. The spectator looked through a hole into a mirror and found the vanishing point. This was the precursor of the camera obscura, which was not invented until the 16th century. You may remember that Donatello and Brunelleschi went together to Rome and one of the things they did there involved taking lots of measurements of the buildings, trying to work out how these things were made to work, what the Romans knew that they had forgotten. In the 1460s, the mathematician Toscanelli devised something called a gnomon, a sort of sundial that would allow them to predict when the summer solstice was going to be. That was useful to the church because their movable feasts relied on knowing that date. Here's what Mary McCarthy has to say about that. Quote, the sun rays let into Santa Maria del Fiore by this prodigious calculator called the noblest astronomical instrument in the world fell 277 feet onto a dial made of marble flags in the floor of the tribune. This no one, with its finger of shadow, was looked on both as a thing of wonder and an object of beauty. Toscanelli also used his maths in the service of astronomy and also in the production of early maps, which became very useful to the explorers of the time. He, for example, advised Columbus and the King of Portugal, because his knowledge of cartography could be really useful. So that led to a connection between Florentines and the people who were beginning to explore the New World. And in fact, it's not entirely a coincidence that America is named after Amerigo Vespucci, who was a Florentine. He was an agent of the Medici Bank. 
As Mary McCarthy puts it, quote, Florence, in those early days of the Renaissance, was full of scientific experiment. All of that was a precursor to Galileo's work, and of course after his death, the Accademia del Cimento was formed, a scientific academy following on very much from the work that he'd been doing and the interest that that had aroused in in things scientific in Florence. So for all those reasons, it's no surprise that Florence should be the home of a well-known science museum, called in fact the Museo Galileo. It focuses particularly on his work and it's home to the only surviving instruments that he designed and built. But it's also broader than that, talking about the science that came after him as well. Some wording from the museum's own guidebook emphasises their approach. Quote, On display are more than a thousand instruments and devices of major scientific importance and exceptional beauty. The focus of the entire exhibit plan is Galileo. The Medici collections bear witness to the scientific culture in which the Tuscan scientist emerged. That describes the first half of the museum, and then it goes on to explain their treatment of scientific development in Florence after the death of Galileo. Quote, the instruments and experimental apparatuses acquired by the Lorraines in the 18th and 19th centuries reflect the powerful stimulus provided by Galileo's discoveries to the development of physical and mathematical sciences in the modern age. There are 28 rooms altogether. I'll just give you a few details on some of the things that you can find. So the collection opens with the first room, known as the Medici Collections. Grand Duke Cosimo I had begun the collection, keeping examples of many of the instruments of science used during his day, and then successors added to it. There are natural history exhibits contributed by Francesco I. There are mathematical and nautical instruments collected by Ferdinando I. There are instruments which were made for use by the Accademia del Cimento. And, of course, some of the original instruments made by or used by Galileo himself. Room 7 bears the title Galileo's New World, and in there you can see explanations of his telescopes and some of the things he discovered thanks to them, and an explanation of the trouble that got him into with the Pope, etc. Then the room next door, room 8, is called Accademia dei Cimento, which explains some of the experiments the Academy carried out and some of the written work they published about it. And as the guidebook tells you, can you can learn all about, quote, the significant results which were achieved by the Academy in thermometry, barometry and the observation of Saturn. Room 9 onwards deals with everything after Galileo and particularly linked to him is room 14, which is entitled The Precision Instrument Industry, harking back to one of his very first inventions, the compass which he designed. So if you're interested in science or just fancy a day off all that art, then I think a visit to the Galilean Museum is highly to be recommended. As a reminder that the pursuit of knowledge, which was taken so seriously in the Renaissance period, rested quite heavily on science and scientific discoveries. So many famous Florentines are from the realms of literature, art, sculpture. And it's nice to remember that science gets a look in too. So that more or less rounds up the Galileo episode. Just remains to tell you that next time in episode 15, we're going to go back, in fact, to the world of the arts. Got three episodes planned on art. And to start with, next time, we're going to go to the Monastery of San Marco, one of the very loveliest buildings in Florence, and home to a large number of the most delightfully beautiful frescoes to be found anywhere in Florence. Many of them painted in the 15th century by Fra Angelico. 
The two episodes after that will also be devoted to other art museums in Florence. But for the moment, I hope that you've enjoyed our scientific interlude in this episode and that you'll be able to join me then next week for the episode on San Marco. Meanwhile, it just remains for me to thank you very much for listening. Grazie. And to look forward, I hope, to your company again in a week's time. Arrivederci.